Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. On today's episode, our host, Dr. Lynn Coick, is joined by Dr. Sandra Glott. Sandra holds a PhD in Aesthetic Studies and is Professor of Media, Arts, and Worship at Dallas Theological Seminary. She is a multi-published author, journalist, and speaker, and she teaches immersive courses in Italy and Great Britain. Recently, she became a recipient of the Luce Grant to photograph women in the visual record of the church and make those photos freely available. Hi, Sandra. It's so nice to have you back on the Alabaster Jar. Hey, thanks. Good to talk with you, always. I am super excited about this subject that you and I are going to be talking about. Um, it's related to art and women and the church, three things, and museums thrown in there. I am, I, I think what you- could be better for some of us geeks? I know, I know. I could spend a lot of time in museums, and my children will testify to that. <laughs> yeah, I'm still back three rooms, um, you know, back from them looking at gorgeous paintings, and they're like, Mom, come on, come on. You don't have to read every single one, Mom. And, and my answer is, yes, I do. Uh, and then and then sit there and just absorb it. So I have I don't have an ounce of artistic ability in my body, but I really have the gene of appreciation. That's what I like to say, you know. So that's what we're going to talk about. Uh, not my gene of appreciation. We're going to talk yeah. about art. <laughs> we're going to talk about art and women in art, and even more directly, women depicted in Christian art and what we can learn from them. So. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in studying women in Christian art? I would love to. So I was directing a course for the seminary where I teach, um, one of the seminaries where I teach, and uh, it's on medieval art and spirituality in Italy. And we were looking hard at trying to find if we're going to draw, draw a Venn diagram between our lives today and what the, the church that the Protestant church in America came out of, which was Roman Catholic Church. So often our perspective is in all that's wrong and all the things the Protestants left. And there's so much overlap, overlap as you well know, in terms of we share the Nicene Creed, that we, we share. So the, their art is telling our story too, right? It's, it's the Bible and it's our history. So I was teaching this class, taking students for two to three weeks, and I I started noticing some things. For example, I started noticing in 8th century architecture, and I put architecture under the banner of art, um, I started noticing all these churches that bore women's names that were there for a thousand years and thinking, I can't think of a church in America that has, I mean, I know there are some, but not in my world, maybe the Virgin Mary, you know, Our Lady of something, but I had never heard of Fosca. I had never heard of Ray Parada. I had uh, barely heard of Thecla. And if you go to the Milan Cathedral today, or you go to the Florence Cathedral, and you go down to the crypt, there aren't dead bodies buried there. I mean, there are, but that's not the thing to look at. It's the architecture that is the foundations of the churches that bore the names of these women. And again, these were on really important holy sites, gathering sites for what would become ginormous cities. And they, the whole nation of 
Italy knew who Ray Parada was. Why don't I? So that was one of the things that I looked at. And part of the answer to, to why, just quickly, is that when the Reformation came, we were concerned that there seemed to be a hierarchy of lay people and saints. And we would look at the Bible and say, well, everyone's called a saint, right? Everyone's sanctified. Everyone's called a holy one. And so we are going to get rid of the saints. When we did that, we got rid of the biographies in many cases. So the saints would have a day when they died. That was considered their day because it's considered a promotion. And so we still have St. Valentine's Day. We still have St. Patrick's Day. <clears throat> Although I don't know if either of those men would quite recognize oh, totally how we not. honor <clears throat> them. St. Nicholas, yes. yeah. Mm. Exactly. Oh, St. Nicholas, maybe yes. he'd be happy. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. He might walk into the mall and just be very Well, upset. that's true. Yeah, yeah it depends. True. Yeah. Depends on the home. But the point is, right, we have some leftover parts of even Protestant culture that remind us that there were saints days at one time. And what I was really noticing in Italy was all these women that I'd never heard of. And I walked into the church in Ravenna, the, the new, you know, 8th century it was new. <laughs> they still call it the new Santa Paula, Palomero. Um, there are 22 women martyrs proceeding toward the throne of Christ, carrying their crowns. And I'd maybe heard of three of them. And fortunately for us, their names are in Latin, Santa, you know, whatever, Felicitas, uh, over their names. And so I had a student who recognized that her education had been very truncated when it came to women. And so she gathered all the names and started digging and created a, a pretty good sized biography uh, for each one. And then we create a liturgy out of it. So the next time we went... Our morning liturgy was giving thanks for name of person who, two lines. And then, and the students didn't know that we were going to then see these 22 women. So they thought we had just chosen 22 random people to give thanks for and thought, how sad, they all died. (laughs) And then we walked into this church in Ravenna and they said, who are they? And we said, they're the women whose stories you told this morning. And there was some stunned silence of just appreciation for we are represented, and yes. we were here, and our stories matter, and they contributed to the church. And so that really set me on more of a journey. What else is represented here? Because I looked through, you know, you look through church councils, and you'd see, well, we voted to get rid of women deacons. We voted to shut down the women who are, you know, the widows or whatever office they had. And I started thinking, if our churches only had records of our town hall meetings at our churches, we get a very different view from what really happened in our churches, right? So, but the visual record often was showing us some of that, what really happened. And a lot of it, to my utter surprise and and joy, had not just women, but gender parity. It had men and women together. So they have that long wall of 22 virgin martyrs, but on the exact opposite wall are 22 men. It's just most of those names we recognized, you know. And so I I just started noticing, particularly there's a church in Rome, the Church of Praxedes. It looks like everywhere you go in the ancient art in that church, the artists have gone out of their way to, whereas one mosaic in another church might have just a stag at the drinking from the fountain of God, this church would have two stags and two does. 
any other church might have the apostles represented in this church. If you have the apostles on an arch, then on the inner arch, they have women. Everywhere you go and look at this old art, some of the newer art in the same church doesn't do that. But the older art, 8th century, 9th century, is committed to gender parity. That's that, was that a is a long way of saying that's how it started. <laughs> well, yeah, no, it, I mean because you're just there and you're noticing and you're asking yes. questions and your yes. students are prompting some questions. And uh, I was going to ask you what surprised you. You've already answered that partly. The surprise of the gender parity because that's another. I, I think com- there's that's a common misconception. I certainly have where women really didn't do much and weren't seen, uh, and the men kind of did did all the decision-making or did all of the public kinds of things. And when you when you depict a woman in art, she's there for a long time, <laughs> you know, right. centuries. And if you put her in mosaic, she's there for a really long time. Exactly. And so um, are there some other special uh, images that – or – Pictures, sure. mosaics, oh, sure. frescoes, maybe they're uh, from a catacomb, I don't know, that that you especially appreciate. So in the same church I was just describing, the Church of Praxedes, the Pope Pascal, and we know it was Pascal because he, he put his logo in a couple of places in the church. And in fact, the first time I thought it, saw it, I thought it was a reference to the Paschal Lamb or something, right? And I was like, nah, nope, apparently that's, he's, he's proud of his work. And he, and, you know, he should be. It was really very beautiful. Art. But anyway, he decided, while his mother was still living, that he wanted to create a little mausoleum for where she would be buried when she died, in this church. And this is the church that has the outer arch with the disciples and the inner arch with women. But there is a mosaic in this little chapel area, this, this mausoleum area, that has his mother in uh, mosaics, and we know that it's her because she has a square halo or nimbus, which tells us still alive at the time. And in the mosaic is written above her head, Episcopa Theodora Episcopa. It actually says Theodore Theodoro because the Theodo <laughs> because somebody's taken out the feminine ending on that and just replaced it very sloppily with and, gold. And why did they? Why would they change yeah, why her name? Would they? Because they, it made it a masculine form, Theodo, even though it's clearly a woman. Uh, but but she's got the name Episcopa above her head, which is bishop. Right. And so rather than try to get up there and change Episca into something, uh, it was just easier to take the, the, the make Theodora into Theodo and just get rid of the last couple of letters in her name. But we know it's her because they missed another place in the same church that has the same inscription, and it has Theodora. Plus, So even back like then, they, they had trouble changing every, like I do on my documents, where I change a name in one place but forget in another. That's an ancient problem, <laughs> yeah, I guess. It okay. is. But we don't know when it was changed. I mean, it's possible it made it all the way to the 14th, 15th, 16th century. But at some point, someone thought it was disturbing. So that's another thing that's been really kind of fun and interesting is to, I remember during the Watergate trials where people would say, you know, the crime was bad, but the cover-up was really bad. And I think that in the case of a couple of pieces of art, these changes drew more attention to the art than otherwise. Like people are going, why is her name Theodo, which isn't a name? It's obviously a woman up there. Um, why would you change that? Why why is that threatening to someone? Anyway, she's up there with the Virgin Mary and then these two twin sisters, 
uh, one of whom the church is named after, which is Praxedes and Pudenziana. And they are, tradition says that they are the daughters of Pudens, who is mentioned at the end of 2 Timothy, and that there's a long tradition of uh, Peter baptizing their father. You know, there's a family connection on the land when Christianity was still illegal. The story that we can't verify, but the story that goes with them is that these two uh, celibate women were so concerned to give the martyrs a proper burial that that was something that the helpless cannot do for themselves. And so they would run in when someone had been martyred with their sponges and take the severed head and put it with the body and clean it and make sure that it was given a proper burial. And eventually they were punished because obviously nobody would do that unless you're a Christian. Uh, so well, that testimony, you have, that's yeah. an amazing uh, act of devotion that we might see yes. like in the biblical text with Joseph of Arimathea taking the yes. body of Christ down oh, and we yeah. we honor him and his act as we should but we don't realize and now now I know as you've told me but uh, I to have that a, as a special act of valor and courage and devotion to um, one's brother or sister in Christ yeah. and who has been martyred. That's very powerful. I had not connected that with Joseph of Arimathea, but you're absolutely right. I mean, I obviously he had some risk involved mm -hmm. in saying he was my friend. And that and that's a uh, that's a really important lesson, or, or I should say modeling. It's modeling uh, in, important character uh, character traits for us as believers. I mean, that's that's very powerful. Yeah. Is there another example that you can think of? One more? Um, sure. So in the uh, Lateran Baptistry, so La the Lateran Church in Rome is the church where the bishop's chair is, bishop's seat. We tend to think of St. Paul's, right, as being the big place because the Pope... Or St. Peter's, yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. St. Peter's. Mm -hmm. Yeah, St. Peter's, thank you. Um, but Lateran is actually like the original first church, and around the block today is the baptistry. It would have been in the past, you wouldn't go into the church unless you first passed through the baptistry, and it was built for adult baptisms, not children's baptism, which means often, like if you look at... at the Florence Cathedral, if you, you look at the Lateran uh, Church, there's a huge baptistry outside that's a separate building. And sometimes, like in Siena, the baptistry has the Apostles' Creed in imagery above your heads. So if you're a new convert and you haven't quite memorized it, you've got your Cliff's Notes above your head. <laughs> oh, there you go. You. Yeah. So anyway, in the Lateran Baptistry, there, uh, there are some ancient mosaics that are even older than in the Church of Praxedes in Ravenna. And I think it's 6th century. I'm not positive, but I think it's that. It's pretty early. And today, when you walk into that baptistry and in the room and the chapel where those mosaic, there's a mosaic of the Virgin Mary, um, before you can see it, there's a huge arch that's been built and it's very decorative. And you wouldn't even know that Mary is in mosaics behind it. But uh, an artist or a person who wrote a chapter in the pattern of women's leadership or pattern, pattern of leadership, Allie, you talk to Allie. Uh, anyway, she had mentioned, if you go to the Lateran Baptistry, be sure to 
to sneak behind the baptistry. Like you'll have to pull the rope off that you're not, and you're not supposed to really go there. But okay, we're, we're going to have to race this part of okay. it, uh, Serene. Yeah. <laughs> Why? <laughs> part of our podcast. No, I'm just teasing. As we tell okay. tell people to well, no, no, go no. beyond no, where no, no. you're really allowed to go. No, yeah. Okay. No, so so we weren't going to. <laughs> no, you were, we you were law-abiding. In. We yes, were law-abiding. Okay, just to make that clear. Okay, <laughs> anyway, good. so we walk in, and they're actually having a baptism. And they are happy to see our group. And we tell the priest what we're looking for, and he's in a jolly mood. And he leads us back there, pulls open the ropes, and it just invites us to take our cameras and be welcome in this space. So we look at the Virgin Mary in this space, and she is wearing the garb that would mark her as a bishop. And it has a big red cross, like it's it comes around her neck, like think of a white strip around her neck and then a strip all the way down her front, down below her waist, and so pretty, like down to her knees, and there's a big cross near the bottom. Except that it's not a cross. It It is just a straight line. And while I'm there, I'm saying, what does that mean? I've never seen a straight line. And I'm looking at, through my pictures and are, going, what is a straight line? I've never seen that. Well, so I come back and I reread the chapter, and then I see that a painter painted a picture of the same mosaic in 1899. And that piece of cloth had a cross on it. And somebody went in and turned it into a straight line. So they took the arms off of it sometime in the last 123 years. Again, it's the cover-up that makes you raise your eyes and go, well, that's interesting. Mary is presented as a bishop. And now Mary just has an L or something on her. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean anything other than that somebody went in and changed the mosaics. So I found that incredibly interesting, and it raises the question of what are people hiding? What, why the cover-up? Um, and the next researcher that comes along will have to help, with, help us answer that question. Yes. Try to yeah. figure out when it changed and who was changing these things and why. Right, right. And the book that you're referring to is Patterns of Women's Leadership in Early Christianity. There you yeah, go. yeah, which is a great book that just came out um, in— uh, last year yeah. i think yeah it's terrific book. yeah yeah wow so um so in that case you've kind of given us two examples of changes to the depictions of women seemingly because they look like they were in positions of leadership in some way and i know that at times people will scholars in the past have looked at something like that and said, well, those are honorary titles. They couldn't be functional titles. Those are honorary titles. And they just say that because they've already made the decision on who can and cannot hold certain positions. So it's really an exciting field, I think, to be in now to study the art, to see where it goes, and to see if perhaps it does challenge, I think it does, some of our presuppositions or our conclusions that we've made in the past about things, especially when we rely so heavily on texts themselves rather than the yes. full picture, Bingo. material, <laughs> culture, art, and that. Yeah, Texts are a tool of analysis, right? But we have lots of tools of analysis. You've got inscriptions, we've got coins, we've got the mosaics, we've got frescoes. And we have, as you said, relied very, very heavily on what's written, 
which is, you know, it is like the record of a town hall. It's important, but it is not the whole picture. So we're getting a lot more, especially as more women are entering the academy, and we're getting more quality research done in some of these areas. We've tended to be siloed, so you might have theologians or you might have art historians, but now we're starting to see art historians and theologians talking together, and they're helping each other interpret. It's, it's a pretty exciting time to be doing some research yes. in this area. And we will talk a little bit more about that uh, in a few minutes. But before we leave the ancient church, I do want to ask, along with the with what you've already mentioned in terms of the the artwork and the piety expressed in that, can you give us a feel of what faithfulness and obedience and piety look like as depicted in the art for these women? Yeah, well, there's definitely a big emphasis on virginity, on celibacy. I've, it, it reminded me so often that, again, after the Protestant Reformation, we strung, swung the pendulum the opposite direction and made marriage sort of the end-all, be-all. And there was a time when virginity was the end-all, be-all, and if you were a married woman with kids, you might have been kind of a spiritual zero. Um, but I also have to remind my students sometimes that this is the first hundred years, really, of the kind of wealth, and none of us feels wealthy, but the kind of wealth that allows so much leisure time that women can study. And it means if you have a dishwasher and you have a washing machine and you have a and a and a and a, um, then all of that allows for more men, men and women to have time to be looking at the arts, to be looking and studying history and digging around in attics or digging around in old churches or in piles of rubble. And we also have the internet. So all of that says that uh, we're, we're starting to relook at where we've gone wrong. And one of the places is in also assuming that virginity is full of purity culture. Because purity culture is a problem, but purity isn't a problem. And embracing a celibate lifestyle so that you can serve wholeheartedly. Uh, it, for the average woman, it had to be a choice. You're if she got a choice, but she didn't get both. She's either a mom and she's at home with a lot of kids and there's no such thing as birth control and she's got to wash all her own diapers by hand or she's in the monastery and there's a life of the mind. She might be copying manuscripts. She might be tending a vineyard for income for that monastery. Um, And I use monastery broadly because in Italy, monastery means both a nunnery and where the guys live. But so it's either or it's not both and and I got to have both and, you know, I can I could be a scholar and have a child and manage it. You know, it was team teaming up with my husband. But the women that are depicted in the art that I'm looking at did not have that choice. Our cultures are too far different. But definitely I was struck and have been struck repeatedly by how much holiness of body was not only an important part of their worship, but it was a form of agency for women, which we tend to not associate with purity at all now. And we again, we've kind of gone the other extreme, but for some of them, they're running away to be able to devote their lives to Christ. They've had arranged marriages of people they don't want to be married to, or they're convincing the person they're married to, we're going to live celibate together. Uh, so again, a little some extremes there, but I think it's really important that we not throw out the baby with the bathwater on that one. That we really take from them a valuing of people who have chosen for the sake of the kingdom not to marry. They've given up family life and all the joys that go with that 
in order to be married to Christ, to be married to the bride of Christ, to serve her wholeheartedly. Um, and that has tended to be very encouraging for my single students, men and women alike, who go and see these spaces. We stay in monasteries. They, uh, we are served by nuns who have a very developed theology of hospitality. And they memorize our drink orders sometimes because we could be Jesus. <laughs> and they, you know, like, no, 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 leave the mess on the table. I, it's my pleasure to clean it up for you. Uh, said no one ever in my life, for the most part. Yes. Um, and all of this, I think, is coming from the art, the reminders that you're not the first person to make sacrifices. Well, these people gave up their lives. Right, right. And that was a thing I was also thinking of, that um, there were wealthy women depicted, the empresses and whatnot. Right. But then you mentioned earlier, just as an aside, the name Felicitas, who was a slave woman, uh, and she is memorialized in, in the mosaic of these virgins taking their crowns towards Christ. That, that would, to my mind, would... Well, it speaks to me even now, but I can imagine just most everyone who has gone through that church is average or below average or penniless when you think of the class structure. Very few, very, very few humans have the kind of wealth that an empress would um, or a big movie star or something like that today. But to think that 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 the church valued mm. her and her service, that's so such a great reminder, especially in this day and age of social media where you want celebrity, you know, and you mm. want mm. likes and that kind of thing, you know. And <laughs> in, in the church, in the art, it's although it's gorgeous, it's celebrating humility. Yeah, and it's everybody's art. I mean, we have Bibles, but that was their Bible. It was their, right? A stained glass window, we might say, oh, so much money, what a waste. But it was like, if you can't afford a Bible, you want a picture of the good shepherd with a sheep around his neck as you're trying to memorize Psalm 23, because you can't read it at the bedside of somebody. It has to be in your brain. It has to be memorized. Uh, So all these stories that that we've forgotten— uh, but the art hasn't forgotten. We, we're going back, and they're really inspiring and convicting. One of the things you mentioned was wealthy women. Uh, one of the questions that we had been asking was, where are the desert mothers? Why are we only hearing about the desert fathers? And as we started digging on that, we're like, oh, they wanted to be forgotten. They would have said they succeeded since we can't find them. What little we find of a Mary of Egypt or something. It's like, yeah, no, they, they were not trying to make a name. They were not even trying to leave a legacy. They were just trying to be faithful. Yeah, and and I think and that ties in with the virginity in as much as mm. um, the idea of being so focused on one's raised and glorified body and the new heaven and the new earth where with our raised and glorified bodies we'll serve Christ and we'll love each other beautifully but not in a romantic way, the way husbands and wives do today. And so how do I how do I set myself up or order my loves, to use maybe mm. a bit of Augustine here, but how do I renew my mind on that truth and order my life and make my decisions based on the on what is temporary now and what is eternal to come? And I think the the virgin women showed at least one way to think through that. 
they're the, they're the cloud of witnesses. Yeah, yeah. And so often we don't see women represented in the cloud of witnesses, and we don't realize how much that affects us until we start realizing, oh, that's a tear rolling down my face when I see myself represented. Well, yeah, yeah. And in fact, I was just going to ask, how does this information help us, what you've been talking about? And I think, yeah, probably at, at the very core, it's a, an inspiration, and you feel like, yeah, I'm... I'm part of this. Yeah, let us consider what those who went before us did and let us throw off every encumbrance. I mean, that's that's what the stories of the cloud of witnesses do. I had a situation in cl- a class I'm teaching just this week where this the, the last two weeks have been church history, women in church history, 2,000 years in two weeks. So I'm like, <laughs> sorry you got so much reading, but, you know, we're shoving – yeah. 2,000 years of history in two weeks. And one of the most moving things to me uh, in class this week, as we just discussed how did that hit you, was one of the women who's been really grieving how she has lived her life. Um, and she said, I've, I've resented things that the church demanded of me. And then I read these stories of these women who are saying to the nuptials, right, who are, are looking forward and truly believing to the point where their life matters little to them. Uh, and they give up food not just as an asceticism act, but because they're in a culture where if you give up food, it means somebody else gets to eat. And we're rich Americans, you know, relatively speaking, right, in terms of world wealth. And so we're often not encountering people in our day-to-day who are literally hungry. They might be down the street or the homeless ministry, but not in our typical daily offices. And so they were just encouraged that um, I, there are things that I can sacrifice. It might not be food in my neighborhood, but it's other things. And one of them said, uh, in my case, it's position. I've been really kind of ticked at how women got treated. And she's like, you know, anger is an appropriate response to injustice. But she said, I let my anger go beyond an appropriate response. And the stories of the martyrs (laughs) brought me back. Wow. It's like they gave up their heads. I can give up some honor at the seat. Wow. Because the Lord sees, sees that. And the injustices will be righted in his time with his perfect justice. And uh, But feeling that love, uh, that sure love, which the, the martyrs testify to, those women testify to. Yeah. Well, you have um, not only taken classes to see these amazing artwork, and you're going to be taking with me, I'm so excited, uh, I get to tag along, uh, Northern students uh, this coming December and early January to look at all this stuff. I'm so excited. But part of the thing, part of the thing that we're going to be doing for this trip, but even in a bigger sense, is uh, creating an online museum, if you will, where people can see photographs and get a bit of the story of these uh, women. Do you want to tell us a little bit about this fabulous thing to to. come that we're building? So, yeah. So we are trying to create one place where people can go to look at women in the visual record of the church. Often, like I might have a book on the Church of Praxedes, or I might have a book on, you know, St. Whatevers and the art in that church. What we don't have typically is the women in those stories, or the virgins from those stories, or the deaconesses, or you know whatever. 
And so this source will allow us to compare art pretty quickly, looking for certain things. You know, the, the clothing Mary is wearing that I was describing around her neck and down her front. Well, if I can look at 15 different photographs from across time, all from maybe Italy, uh, then I can start make, identifying some patterns. So we want to have a gathering place for all this information. We want to have one place where people can go, but we also are working to make it so that everybody can use these images in sermons and messages. Right now, you're really tied down with copyright and payment and permissions, and all of that is important. I work in the arts. I, we want artists to get credit where it's due, but it's kept us from representation. And so uh, the Loose Foundation has granted us $50,000 to work with, Dr. Koek and me and George. Uh, George Palancis, yep. Palancis, that's right, mm-hmm. at Wheaton, Wheaton College. He's a history uh, expert. Yep. And working in partnership together, so we have three different schools collaborating, and they are uh, helping cover expenses for us to go with professional photographers to capture these images all of which are being created as work for hire so they will be available free of copyright restrictions. We will ask people to credit, but it's not required. Uh, it's not always appropriate in every context to include a permissions line. So anyway, we just want a one-stop shop where people can come find this uh, information and then uh, students at Northern are working on some descriptions to go with it. So they're doing academic research to make sure it's well vetted, well documented. We're not just guesstimating on some of this. Now, there are some pieces where we're still working and, and where we don't know, we will say so. But we're also hoping some experts out there who know things that we don't know uh, will say, hey, I know something about that. We're already discovering they exist uh, just in the last few weeks. Uh, and we want a place where they can come to us and say, I have photos you can use as well. That's right. So it'll be housed in the Center for Women in Leadership here at at Northern, and we're hoping to launch it in the spring. We're looking at March, I think, as the date at this point that we're working towards. Uh, And by having it online and being able to continue to increase, we'll go beyond the early and medieval church in Italy to broader. And I kind of imagine it as a museum where we'll have different rooms that people can go into, maybe yeah, art in the Italy. The Egyptian room, or, the Cappadocian room. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I, I think that will really, really be exciting. And the uh, just to give a little taste to people, there was a, of, of what is possible, the, um, the magazine Christianity Today, in their November 2022 issue, so just coming out, has a an article with some of these photos. And uh, Sandra, I think you know that that uh, photographer. Is that right? Yeah, she she came as part of a different grant that I was given uh, as a professor. There was a woman who was a teacher all her life and saved a little bit of every dollar she ever made. And she left it for faculty to use in projects that were our dream projects that we didn't have any funding for. And so I got funding to take a photographer with me, who's a really good photographer, uh, to get some of these images on paper. And then this student, her name is Rada Vias, 
did an independent study with me in publishing. So she pitched it to CT. She went to the Evangelical Press Association national meeting with me and met some of the people who were on staff with CT and gave them her card and put together a photo essay. And yes, they just ran that photo essay in their November issue. And they did a beautiful job. They gave it a black backdrop so the photos really pop. And then she provided the descriptions to go with it. So it's very exciting for students. Just last night, uh, we had a big student showcase and our uh, our school did a big visual presentation with huge blow-ups of the photos that appeared in CT. And then we have a little art gallery that they'll be moved to for the next couple of months. So that's very exciting time for this student. <laughs> oh, I can imagine. And good for her. I mean, it, it is absolutely beautiful. And so there, there's a lot of there's a lot of opportunity out there. There's a lot of churches with these hidden gems, and as we bring them into the light, kind of polish them off, put them in a context, put them in a setting, so the church today can celebrate past faithfulness and be encouraged to uh, set our own course of faithfulness. Well, thank you so much, Sandra, for uh, just chatting with us about uh, about wonderful, nerdy, museum kind of stuff, right? Actually, not so much that at all, right? It's about our past uh, and the women who have gone uh, before us and their faithfulness that is preserved uh, in, in the beautiful art. Thanks so much. You've been listening to another episode of the Alabaster Jar podcast. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Dr. Sandra Guan, go to the episode description to learn more about her work. Please subscribe, share, and join us here again next week for another conversation about topics that impact women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry.